Well, I'm imagining that like many of you, I've got Hurricane Irma on my mind as we meet here this morning. More specifically, I have my 95-year-old father on my mind who remains in his home in Fort Myers where Irma could make a landfall any minute now. Last night I noticed that it was one of the choice selections for landfall. It turns out his assisted living building was hardened for hurricanes and became the evacuation site for the residents of two other assisted living units and a nursing home in his multi-tiered complex right near Sanibel Island. They've all been crammed into the hallways and dining rooms along with families of workers, so quite a few children have found refuge there as well. He says it's quite a scene. My brother and sister-in-law fled the area yesterday when they learned their home was in flood zone A, which they learned as the reports about the flood surge were circulated. We were still trying to absorb the destruction of Hurricane Harvey. But that's fallen out of the headlines as the natural disasters pile on. Mexico had a twin punch of both a hurricane and an earthquake. And all this natural disaster layered on top of a nuclear standoff with North Korea and a vexing dysfunctional political environment fueling a noxious tribalism. I suppose we could be forgiven if thoughts of the last days floated into consciousness. Well, preoccupied with all of these matters, and especially the storm in Florida now, I was reminded of an email exchange I had in early 2005 with a young congregant. I think she was probably in her mid to late 20s. She was reeling from the devastating tsunami that had swept away a quarter of a million people in Indonesia in the blink of an eye on the day after Christmas. She was asking me the ancient question of why bad things happen. And as I was sitting thinking about these matters, it seemed timely and relevant to share a portion of our exchange with you this morning. She began, Stephen, happy 2005. I hope you had a terrific Christmas and New Year's celebration. Last week I was asked by a co-worker why God would allow a natural disaster such as the tsunami to kill a multitude of innocent people. A few thoughts sputtered through my mind, including natural population cleansing, a wake-up call, etc., but I was unable to provide a solid answer. My generation has experienced a couple of wake-up calls in the past few years, but unlike 9-11, which I summed up as the evil of humanity, I cannot find a valid explanation for this disaster. How do I explain God's will in this tragedy to a borderline atheist? I look forward to seeing you on Sunday and thank you for your time. Fondly, Haley. Hi, Haley. 
you ask a tough question. Among the toughest unanswerable questions for any person of faith, although there are a few things we can say around the edges. First, it's very important to say what a disaster like the tsunami is not. It is not God's special punishment visited upon a whole class of persons. That's always been an easy out for fundamentalists of every stripe. You might remember that Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson said that about 9-11. And I've heard imams in the news saying it about the tsunami. Job addressed this question about undeserved suffering millennia ago. That's really what we're asking here. Why is there suffering in the world? Jesus made clear that suffering is part of the fabric of existence and at one point referenced a certain physical disaster, the collapse of a tower. And he asked, were the victims of this collapse greater sinners than all others? And he flatly answered in the negative. Of course, that does not answer why persons must suffer in the main. But we can make some other general comments. For instance, we can say that all of us are going to die. What we seem to so resent is a premature end, although who's to say just what period of time is too short or perhaps too long in some cases. I'm mindful that when we pray for someone to be healed, and they are healed, what we've really done is postpone the inevitable. That does not make the healing any less desirable, but it does place the healing in an appropriate context. This area of focus in theology is called theodicy, one of the oldest concerns of theological inquiry. And as I mentioned, the book of Job is a very early and profound example. For Christian theologians, the question they ask is, how does suffering square with a loving God? We never can finally answer it. We poke at it, we posit tentative explanations, but at best, our answers are always partial. But that doesn't mean God is not loving. Although we see clearly that any sentimental definition of love won't do. God stands above, behind, beneath all things. And when disaster strikes, we are thrust into our most dependent position, a position we do not like because it pushes us to the outermost limits of our knowledge and understanding. Faith calls us to trust even still. In fact, faith is defined by the limits of our knowledge. Faith reaches beyond those limits. Faith also calls us to be realists, to acknowledge that a disaster has not created a new set of problems and conundrums, but reiterates the basic situation of our being born and having to die. It shakes the sentimental and comfortably secure Christian into facing the truth about the real stakes. It jolts awake our understanding of the sacred and holy nature of life and of time. C.S. Lewis wrote that in some circumstances, pain served as God's megaphone to capture our attention. I have personal understanding of what he means. 
Sometimes I've seen persons come to faith in the midst of suffering. It actually becomes an awakening agent. Of course, for others, it pushes them away since they seem to know that had they been in charge, they would have built the thing differently. Remember that Christianity is founded on the life and times of a man who died by crucifixion for the sake of love. When we're at our best, we do not flinch from the reality of suffering. And though we may not fully understand it, we believe that God can redeem it. That's the meaning found in resurrection faith. I believe God does not will bad things to happen to people, even though the created order clearly allows for it. I can't prove that, of course. It's through faith in the God of resurrection that I sense this truth. When speaking with someone about these matters, it's important to remember that saying less is probably more. I will often say to someone when they ask a really tough question, you know, I really don't know the answer, but this is what I do know, and then go from there. For instance, I know a personal God who is as near as my next breath, and yet has also flung the stars into distant space. I know a profound trust in this same God. I know of an abiding presence to me and to those that I love so that I am able to pray as we do in our funeral liturgy. Help us to live as those who are prepared to die. And when our days here are accomplished, help us enable us to die as those who go forth to live so that living or dying our life may be in you and that nothing in life or in death will be able to separate us from your great love. Haley, faith does not predict having an easy way. Never has any any minister you've ever heard who has implied this in one way or another has misled you and diminished Christianity's content. Easy is not a compatible modifier for faith. But importantly, very importantly, Profound faith does predict having a certain confidence about life, a certain courage in the face of death and suffering, and a certain willingness to respond to life and generous love. Profound faith gifts us with hope so that each day can be received joyfully with gratitude, awe, and wonder. That's why even in the midst of tragedy, we still feel groans of thanksgiving buried deep within This is the engine of an indefatigable human spirit that lives each day expectantly and passionately, loving God above all things and one's neighbor as oneself. Haley, may the new year bring you one or two astonishing blessings. Stephen, thank you so much. This is a really tough issue for me and one that I will face for the rest of my life. Many of us children of baby boomers have grown up sheltered and expect that everyone, including ourselves, should automatically live to an old age and die a peaceful death. Although events like these are devastating and saddening, I do feel like God has just tapped me on the shoulder and reminded me to appreciate each day and to live it as if it were my last. I forwarded your response to several friends and family members. See you Sunday. Haley. We had a few other exchanges.
And now here we are, an array of different persons, personalities, life experiences collected on a Sunday as another natural disaster makes its way up the Florida Peninsula. By all accounts, it's a very massive event that will disrupt the lives of thousands, perhaps millions of people. As you know from experience, talking about a disaster way over there is one thing. But a a disaster that involves your home or your livelihood or the people you love is a very different matter. A dispassionate theological conversation doesn't exactly meet the need. But what does begin to meet the need are acts of sacrificial love. And tellingly, that's exactly what the witness of our scripture reveals, even as we heard it read today. Paul was the most explicit when he wrote that that the whole law is summed up in loving our neighbor as ourselves. The whole law is summed up The whole law is summed up in loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's a breathtakingly comprehensive point of view. But the other passages we heard also point to the essential obligation we have for each other. As I told Haley, the heart of Christian faith is found in a supreme example of sacrificial love. That's our model and our hope. This sort of love is redemptive and catalyzes the energy in resurrection. These are inseparably linked. And so we learn that the real meaning of our faith is found in how we treat one another. That's where the real meat on the bone is for our faith, how we go about treating one another day in and day out, how well we extend ourselves and share our resources and pursue the upbuilding of the common good. Helping rebuild one's one neighbor's home is an important, tangible expression. And this good work then expands into shared community concerns and public policy that advances the general welfare of people from every walk of life. And this point of view, you see, challenges our tribalistic tendencies as we internalize the truth that we are all sisters and brothers together responsible for one another. We are not simply islands of self-concern to hell with everyone else. God calls us to buck this radical individualist nativist tendency. That's the call embedded in our scriptures on every single page. Man, it's a hard lesson to learn. As David Brooks recently wrote, Post Harvey, you might be Black Lives Matter and he may be Make America Great Again but you're both Houstonians cruising the same boat down the flooded streets. 
And you know, here's the surprise. Here's the surprise in what we're talking about. We discover this truth in our suffering. Do you see the gift embedded there for us to see? And do you hear the call that's implied? And what I will tell you is that as the months roll on here at Christ Church, we will increasingly be framing our mission and ministry out of precisely this kind of theological framework. Pursuing the matter of loving our neighbors as ourselves. Because after all, that is the meat on the bone, as Paul says. And you will be given many opportunities to participate. For instance, I imagine that in days ahead we'll be assembling teams to go south to Florida or Houston. And I'm suggesting that you right now make the decision. You're going to give up some of your days off, some of your vacation days, and join one of our teams that will go down there. And I'm going to suggest that this is a way of thinking about our work up in Washington Heights at El Nido. It's the heart of the matter, where we are practicing how to love our neighbors as ourselves. Pushing ourselves. Encouraging ourselves, encouraging one another to step into the glory of what it means to be human and what it means to be followers after the way of Jesus. Suffering reveals the sacred truth. We are meant to love one another.